Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisol Hogo and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, United Nations says it's ready to mediate in the DRC if requested. And South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa begins working visit to Mozambique. British MPs to vote on the government's deal to leave the EU. In economics news, Zimbabweans cross the border into South Africa to buy fuel. And in sports news, world record holder Eliud Kipchoge to defend his London Marathon title. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Gabon's ailing president Ali Bongo is expected to return home from Morocco. Gabon has been without an effective government for months since Bongo fell ill while attending an economic forum in Saudi Arabia in October and was flown to Morocco to recuperate. Last week, the country put down a coup attempt capturing the rebel chief and killing two of his men after a group of soldiers stormed a radio station to call for an uprising in Bongo's absence. At the weekend, Prime Minister Julien Hungohe Bakale announced reshuffles of the government and cabinet. The presidency says Bongo will preside over the oath-taking ceremony this morning. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Constitutional Court is this morning expected to start hearing and appeal against presidential election results that gave victory to opposition leader Felix Tshisekedi. Opposition leader Marte Fayolo was declared runner-up in the December 30 poll. Fayolo says the results released last Thursday, which are provisional, were an electoral coup and is demanding a recount. On Sunday, the Southern African Development Community blog called for a unity government and urged a recount to provide the necessary reassurance to both winners and losers. Violent protests that erupted in Zimbabwe after the government more than doubled fuel prices have claimed lives. This is according to the country's national security minister, who did not specify the number of those killed. Owen in a statement accused the opposition and civil society organizations of being behind the protests. He said it's regrettable that the protests resulted in the loss of life and property, including injury to police officers and members of the public. Protesters burnt tires and barricaded roads while cars were torched after the fuel price increased. Ifat Musikiwa has more on the protests and those injured. Last night, we got confirmation that more than seven people were shot while they were protesting. As to who shot them, it's not yet been confirmed. We also understand that last night, the Minister for State Security issued a press statement that the NDC is responsible for the protest. We blaming the NDC alliance led by Nelson Chamisa to see that she claimed that they know that they are the ones that are responsible for the issues that are happening at us. Senior European officials have published a letter with further reassurances about the draft Brexit deal that will be put before Parliament in a crucial vote. The withdrawal deal is facing defeat by MPs and Prime Minister Theresa May has warned that the citizens' faith in the democratic process 
would suffer catastrophic damage if the Brexit process was to be halted. The BBC's Norman Smith reports. The hope in Downing Street is that today's letter from the EU will go some way to allay MPs' concerns over the Northern Ireland backstop. It stresses that the EU does not want the backstop to come into force, that it should only be temporary, and the EU would use its best endeavours to bring it to an end expeditiously. Mrs May said she hoped this would provide MPs with the necessary confidence to back her deal. However, the assurances are not legally binding and have already been dismissed by the Prime Minister's opponents. And finally, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has called for more resources to help African refugees in 2019. The comments by Filippo Grandi came during a two-day visit to Egypt where he met President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and other government officials. His trip to Cairo also comes as Egypt repairs to assume the presidency of the African Union in February. Grandi also voiced concern over the protests in Sudan, saying he fears displacement would occur if the situation deteriorates in the country. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The United Nations says it remains ready to assist in mediation if all political sides in the DRC request such an intervention. The global organization's remarks come amidst regional calls for a negotiated settlement that could lead to a government of national unity or a possible recount at the discretion of national authorities in the country. The electoral authority in the DRC earlier announced... Felix Chesakedi as the provisional winner of the presidential election, but runner-up Martin Fayulu has challenged the outcome in the country's constitutional court. Show and Bryce Peace reports. SADC's organ on politics, defense and security has since clarified earlier statements calling for a ballot recount, now focusing its efforts on reaching a negotiated settlement through dialogue and inclusiveness. We asked the UN Secretary General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric to weigh in during this exchange. It's not for me to, to comment on what SEDEC uh, says. We, comp- we continue, obviously, to follow the discussions, uh, the developments closely. Uh, we are in touch uh, on the ground with all the relevant stakeholders. I think what is important is that the constitutional process follows its, uh, its way. Uh, we've, seen, uh, we've seen the latest developments on, on that end. It is also important that everybody remains uh, calm and uh, we will continue to follow and support what is a Congolese-owned process in whatever way we can. Does the UN, though, foresee any role for itself or the organization, its good offices, in possible mediation talks between the political parties in that country? As always, the UN remains available for good offices should all sides request it, and that's valid for any situation. Zambia's President Edgar Lungu chairs the SADC organ and has since called for the DRC's political parties to engage in dialogue while recognizing the legal processes underway as provided by the Constitution. His latest statement says any conditions for a recount should be left to the sovereign internal procedures of the DRC. This new language has the backing of South Africa's Department of International Relations. That while earlier appearing to support a government of national unity as a possible outcome, now says it will not preempt the internal process underway in the DRC. Their statement Monday says South Africa will therefore not prescribe a form of government or presuppose the outcome of the electoral process. This was the Secretary General's special representative to the DRC, Leila Zarugi speaking in the Security Council on Friday. The coming days are therefore critical to the conclusion of this historic electoral process. I continue to discharge my good offices engaging with all Congolese stakeholders to reinforce the need for calm and recourse to establish judicial procedures and to emphasize that a supreme sense of responsibility must prevail through the days ahead. UK Ambassador Karen Pierce, speaking in the same meeting, made several points on the disputed outcome. We have noted the Senko statement 
that their data does not reflect the announced result, and we therefore request both Senko and Saini to give uh, further data and other analysis in the electoral process. And we, like others, uh, would like to know if it is possible for Saini to publish results at the level of local polling centres and bureau to vote. Uh, my third point is that, as we know, the electoral process is ongoing, uh, so it's important uh, in the coming days that the Congolese people see a process that delivers uh, what they voted for and that any disagreement is done through the proper channels and is done peacefully and constructively. The DRC's Catholic Church, or Senko, has raised concerns about the accuracy of the announced vote count, while the country's constitutional court is expected to rule on Fayulu's challenge in the days ahead. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Some Zimbabwean nationals are crossing the Bait Bridge border into South Africa to buy fuel. The Zimbabwean government announced a 150% fuel increase last week. It now costs over 43 rands to buy a litre of petrol. Zimbabweans buying fuel at a petrol station next to the border say fuel has become too expensive in Zimbabwe. Some are carrying containers and crossing the border on foot, while others are motorists who are filling extra containers. Our reporter Rodzani Chivase has more. The influx of people from Zimbabwe coming to South Africa to buy petrol is increasing by day. The movement started a few days ago when it was becoming clear that the country was running out of fuel. Some of them traveled from as far as Blawayo, more than 250 kilometers away, to come and buy petrol in South Africa. Zimbabweans we talked to buying petrol near the border say the situation is tough back home and the only option is to cross into South Africa to get fuel. Yeah, it's cheap, my friend. Because look, now in Zim, equivalent to um, 40 rand later. So here, yeah, you know, you can buy anything. You buy um, things here, it's cheaper than Zim. Sure. Not for use. I've got a combi in, in, in Zim. Text. So I know that actually if, if I pour 50 liters, it took me about a week. So to put 25 liters, it, it needs something like 40 something dollars. And here it's cheap. And it's quality petrol. Some are buying to sell in the black market. They say they had no choice but to take advantage of the situation. I'm from Zimbabwe, just here around Bedbridge. I came here to buy petrol for my taxi. Fuel is too expensive in Zimbabwe. It's about 3 US dollars a litre. But here is cheap. Is 14 rent a litre. For you to get to the petrol dispenser attendant, you need almost two to three hours. Sometimes you have to go and join the queue without knowing where they're going to deliver it or you don't deliver it. Florence Moyo is making money from selling empty containers to people who are coming to buy fuel. Moyo says she's expecting business to boom in the next few days. Because fuel is very expensive in Zimbabwe, so people came here to take to buy containers and take fuel to go with it to Zimbabwe. I sell 10 liters, 25 rand, 20 liters, 40 rand, 5 liters, they are 15 rand, these buckets are 30 rand. If the situation remains unchanged in Zimbabwe, more and more people might cross over to South Africa to get fuel. I'm Ruzan Chibase at the Bad Bridge border between South Africa and Zimbabwe. The United Nations is preparing a fresh global appeal for Zimbabwe as it faces another El Nino year which threatens food insecurity for millions. Meanwhile, the United Kingdom has provided five million US dollars to assist the World Food Program in the country in response to the humanitarian needs. The UN Food Agency says the United Kingdom joins various other partners providing aid and assistance. However, more funding is needed for the Southern African nation. For more on this issue, here's the WFP's Deputy Country Director, Niels Bowser. As usual, we are advised by the government and partner-led 
Food and Nutrition Council assessment that's usually done uh, in the early part of the year. That usually gives us an idea as to the depth uh, and the extent of the food insecurity. So last year's 2018 assessment has uh, given us a number of about 2.4 million rural Zimbabweans that will face acute food insecurity at the peak of the current lean season the peak being from January to March uh, 2019. Maybe in addition, one of the issues that has been coming up through that assessment is that, as well is that we see increasing numbers and levels of food insecurity in urban areas as well. Now, let's talk about the response. I understand the UK and WFP will be providing about 5 million US dollars in response to the humanitarian situation for about five districts. If you can tell us about that and why those particular five districts. Yeah, so the overall response, the humanitarian response this season is closely coordinated with uh, the government who have their own channels of supporting uh, rural people. But in parallel, uh, we have our own program as in, as in WP with a host of partners. And we're very happy to and grateful that the UK, uh, after some years of absence, has uh, decided to uh, respond with the help of uh, WFP again, as you said, to the tune of about 5 million US dollars in a particular number of districts. But that's also to say that we have a host of other partners on board. It's the US, it's uh, China, it's a number of other partners that are uh, equally and substantially investing in the lean season response through WFP. So in total, we'll be looking at around 30 or 32 districts that we'll be supporting at the peak going forward and about uh, reaching uh, 1.1 million people, food insecure people in rural areas. And, but as I mentioned earlier, given the situation in the urban areas as well, uh, the UK is supporting us to look at how we can respond in urban areas as well. For now, at the smaller scale uh, in Harare. And what are the priorities in response? And is it in the form of cash or food supplies? How exactly is the WFP intending to assist the most vulnerable populations? First of all, we have a quite a sophisticated targeting system in place, which goes through several layers to ensure that we reach the most vulnerable, uh, the most needy, with our assistance. We do have a combination of food and cash um, that we are providing. It depends on the context, it depends on the assessments that we do at the district and sub-district level of what the mix is of the, 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 the two transfer modalities. But that's to say also that the bulk of this year's lean season assistance, over 70%, will be in the form of social cash transfers. Just to conclude, from a WFP point of view, what's your concern for Zimbabwe this year? I think we look at a number of uh, factors that are coming together um, that are aggravating the situation and of, of key concern for us is also that, as you probably know, we are facing yet another El Nino year. The season has started late, the rain has started late, we've already seen erratic rainfalls, long dry spells in various areas and we are most likely going to face a below average harvest again this year, this season, and that means that our response or our support will probably need be needed beyond the, the regular and even the next lead season will start uh, even earlier. Any call to action from the global community? Yeah, I think, you know, we are, um, given the deteriorating situation on the food security side of things, together as a UN, we have been uh, working on a flash appeal, which we will be publicizing shortly. And that looks at, this is not just about food insecurity and providing food assistance. It's about water sanitation. It's about health. It's about education. We need to look at providing an integrated package of support to the most needy out there. We will come back to the international community as a UN system in the country in the next couple of weeks to appeal to you for further support. That's Niels Balzer, Deputy Country Director for the United Nations World Food Programme in Zimbabwe, speaking to Jane Rabutata. Afrikapitalism is about the intersection of economic prosperity and social wealth. On the 21st of this month, the Shed Value Africa Initiative Summit will take place at Lily's Leaf Farm just outside the city of Johannesburg in South Africa. High-powered business people of all ages will meet 
to strategically assess the challenges of facing business on our continent and set an agenda for 2019 to 2020. If you cannot make it, do not worry. Join Channel Africa from 1100 hours to 1200 hours Central African time for live coverage of the event. Together, we can create the Africa we want and build shared value ecosystems across the continent to grow the Africa economy for all. So join us on the 21st of January for the Shared Value Africa Initiative Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African Perspective. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is on a working visit to Maputo in Mozambique where he is holding bilateral talks with his counterpart President Felipe Nyusi on bilateral, regional and global issues of common interest. South Africa and Mozambique enjoy very good economic, political and cultural relations dating back to the days of the struggle against apartheid. Amanda Machaka spoke to Professor Andre Thomas Hazen, a constitutional law expert from the University of South Africa. And just how significant is this working visit by President Ramaphosa? Well, it is normal that within the SADC uh, group of countries, uh, the heads of state uh, see each other uh, alongside the regular FedEx meetings. There are many issues of concern, even though Mozambique is not really uh, economically so, so important to South Africa. Um, South Africa is very important to Mozambique. We are Mozambique's main trading partner, but everything Mozambique consumes these days comes from, from South Africa. But the relations have never been, been that easy. Uh, there will also be quite a number of issues that that the parties will have to try and resolve. And picking up on the number of issues that you're mentioning, there are concerns about relations between the two countries following the arrest of Mozambique's former finance minister, Manuel Shang, at Oratamba International Airport last month. Does this not have the potential to affect diplomatic ties between Pretoria and Maputo? Manuel Shang is the kingpin in what um, a very famous international diplomat, former U.S. Secretary of State, Hank Cohen, um, uh, turned only two days ago on his Twitter account as the greatest theft and scandal in Africa since 1960. This is the context, and um, it is damaging the future uh, good reputation of the region, of SADC as an investment destination in the region, and it is concerning South Africa that uh, our neighbor is, um, is not able um, to, to actually respond and, and manage what was an enormous abuse of, of, of law, uh, over 2 billion euros, which is 30 billion rounds, it's more or less everything that ESCOM owes, were stolen, were, were, were negotiated as a loan, and this Minister of Finance signed an instruction to the lending bank in Switzerland and said, please, don't pay this loan into the National Bank of Mozambique, pay it into the account of our middleman in Abu Dhabi in the Emirates and this is where the money disappeared. So uh, it's a very serious matter for the region, for the reputation, including of South Africa. So I think the, the legal process of Mr. Chang, who's now been detained in Pretoria on, on, on the request of the United States of America, because a lot of American investors were, were defrauded, were, were tricked into, into buying so-called bonds from Mozambique, which are worthless, um, that, that is just a technicality, and I'm pretty sure that the due process of law in South Africa would just be followed. There's, there's nothing else that South Africa could do. We would look really very bad if we, just to please uh, the government of the day in Mozambique, we would now upset the, the process of law and, and refuse to hand over this man to the American authorities. Um, so the, process, the, the problem is bigger than the detention of this Minister of Finance. And we understand that this former Minister of Finance has said through his lawyer that he will oppose the extradition to the U.S. after denying any wrongdoing. This is based on the magnitude of this case and without preempting the outcome. Does he stand any chance of success? Very difficult. We, we've have, uh, we have one famous case of a, of a German fraudster who in the 2000s lived in Cape Town, and Mr. Hoxham. He had defrauded uh, German investors to the tune of 2 billion euros, also an enormous amount of money, um, and, uh, and he managed to resist extradition for seven years uh, by going back to court. But 
there wasn't an applicable extradition agreement between Germany and South Africa. And that's not the case with America. We have a very modern and a very clear extradition agreement between South Africa and America. And the only grounds upon which South Africa could refuse to send this man to stand trial in America would be to argue that America wants to prosecute him for political reasons. And, and that, of course, there's absolutely no, no grounds to, to say that. And so I don't think he will have much of a chance. Of course, he can exhaust the legal remedies. He, he, he will now appeal to the High Court. He can then try and get leave to appeal to the Supreme Court, and then he can try and appeal to the Constitutional Court, and this can take a few months. But um, in, 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 in the substance, I don't, see, I don't see grounds for him to resist it. That was Professor Andre Thomas-Hosen, a constitutional law expert based at the University of South Africa, speaking to Amanda Machaka. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukuvong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. British lawmakers will finally get to vote on whether to accept Prime Minister Theresa May's withdrawal agreement laying out the terms of departure from the European Union in a key vote this evening. The deal has the approval of the EU's other 27 members, but it remains hugely unpopular among many MPs and the British leader is expected to suffer a humiliating defeat on this key piece of legislation. Catherine Drew reports from London. On Monday, British Prime Minister Theresa May made a last-ditch appeal to MPs of all parties, asking them to vote for her long-negotiated deal with the European Union or risk what she called letting the people down. Earlier in the day, she appeared at a factory in Stoke-on-Trent, an area that voted heavily to leave the European Union, warning of paralysis in Parliament and catastrophic harm to public trust in politics if the UK did not leave the bloc. But for all these strong words, it is widely accepted a large number of opposition and her own Conservative MPs will vote against the deal, serving the Prime Minister a serious defeat for her Brexit plans. The majority of opposition to the deal centres on the so-called backstop arrangements for Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, if a trade deal has not been struck in the time allowed. Northern Ireland shares a land border with Ireland, which is part of the European Union. At present, goods and people can flow freely between the two. To avoid having to put in a border to check goods, Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK would remain in a customs union. This could mean different regulations for Northern Ireland, and the UK would not be able to unilaterally leave this agreement, with many fearing the country could be trapped in this arrangement indefinitely. If Theresa May's Brexit withdrawal agreement is rejected, as is expected, she has three days to return to the House of Commons to lay out her Plan B. Many believe she would be forced to return to Brussels to try to win more concessions from the European Union. Meanwhile, the opposition Labour Party have promised to table a vote of no confidence in the government in the hopes of triggering a general election. Either way, Tuesday's vote will be a key moment in Britain's long-running Brexit saga. Catherine Drew, SABC News, London. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. 
Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, President Ali Bongo is expected to return to Gabon after receiving treatment for his stroke he had in October. Authorities in Zimbabwe say at least 200 people have been arrested and an unspecified number killed after violent protests erupted over a shocking increase in fuel prices. And the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has called for more resources to help African refugees in 2019. Those are the stories making headlines. Let's go back in time to today in 1996. King Mushesha II of Lesotho in a car accident shortly after he reclaimed his royal throne in 1995. The car he was traveling in rolled down a cliff on a mountain road on the way to the capital, Maseru. That's today in history in 1996. Rahaf Mohamed Al-Kunin, a social media savvy teenager, was granted asylum in Canada after fleeing her own family in Kuwait, wants to go back to school as soon as possible, according to a UN refugee agency. Al-Kunin, who fled because of fears of being killed, is expected to continue her education in Canada with the help of the government. UNHCR's Jean-Nicolas Boise says emergency resettlements like hers represent just a fraction of the world's 25.4 million refugee cases. We have very few places for resettlement and therefore not only 0.5% of uh, all the 25 million uh, refugees are uh, to be resettled to a third country like uh, Canada. In the case of uh, RAF, uh, we were facing the situation where she had arrived in uh, Thailand uh, the Thai authorities uh, granted access uh, to UNHCR to her to assess a claim that she uh, was going to be at risk if she was being sent back to Saudi Arabia. And therefore, we approached different uh, countries to see whether we could find a, a durable solution once UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, had uh, um, assessed that she was a, a refugee. Canada responded very swiftly and efficiently and offered uh, uh, the solution of bringing her to Canada where now she can start a new life. Uh, the mechanism uh, by which uh, Ms. Al-Kanun has been accepted by Canada is said to be available only for a fraction of the world's uh, 25.4 million refugees. Could you tell us about um, or more about this and how, how this process works? So the resettlement uh, program is, uh, is a life-saving intervention uh, that uh, targets the most vulnerable of the refugees. When refugees arrive in a first country of Ivalu, some of them will be able to uh, resume uh, life in, ex- in exile, but some of them have specific vulnerabilities and will not be able really to, uh, to, to, to maintain their, their well-being and, and their life in the new country of Aizalon. For those, we need to uh, find a, a durable solution in a third country, and that's the program uh, that UNHCR carries out and which is called the Resettlement Program. We are speaking here about women at risk. We are speaking about uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, minorities, we are speaking about people who may be at risk of being sent back to their country of origin or people who have medical uh, uh, ca- uh, concerns that cannot be addressed in the first country of Ireland. Only 0.5% of uh, the 25 million refugees will ever be resettled to a third country, and UNHCR has identified uh, close to 1.4 million of those 25 million who are in need of this uh, Solution. This is a very, a very rare occurrence and, and one which targets really only the most vulnerable refugees. Uh, talking about Canada, please tell me uh, if you have any recent statistics on the number of individuals uh, offered asylum status in Canada, especially with the help of the UNHCR. 
So this year, in uh, 2019, Canada will uh, resettle close to 11,000 refugees, which will come uh, from different parts of the world, the Middle East, Africa, uh, and Asia or or Central America. Um, In addition to that, Canada also will process a number of uh, cases of asylum seekers, people who come spontaneously to uh, Canada and seek asylum in Canada. Last year, we have seen approximately 50,000 asylum seekers, and more than half of them have been recognized as refugees by the Canadian Immigration and Refugee Board. What is UNHCR's office in Canada uh, role now uh, towards the Saudi citizen, the young Saudi citizen in Canada? How, how is the, your office helping her as a new refugee? So UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, does not have an integration program or services in Canada uh, because the, the, the government is in charge of making sure that refugees we are resettled or asylum seekers who are recognized as refugees uh, receive all the support which is necessary for them to integrate fully uh, into Canadian society, to become member of that society, to become economic agents, find jobs, go back to school, uh, be able to establish themselves in, in, in Canada. So the, the government of Canada has a number of partners, and in the case of uh, half, uh, we have an agency here, COSTI, in Toronto, that will be taking care of all those services, helping her to uh, learn English, going back to school, which uh, half has indicated she would like to do rapidly, finding, a, finding an apartment and eventually uh, be on her own as, a, as, a, as, as any other uh, permanent residents of Canada. And just to mention that we, we know from uh, the different census that refugees uh, uh, resettled to Canada do extremely well in terms of their integration. It takes a few years for them to be able to to find a job, to um, regain control over their life, and to become very productive and positive member of the Canadian society. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That's Jean-Nicolas Brezet of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees speaking to UN Radio's Hafiz Khair. Let's go back in time to today in... 1989, NATO, the Warsaw Pact and 12 other European countries adopted a human rights and security agreement in Vienna, Austria. Today in history, 1989. The murder of the journalist Hamal Khashoggi in a Saudi consulate last October has put a strain on Saudi-U.S. relations. The U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in Saudi Arabia seeking more answers about what happened. The killing has cast a spotlight on the role of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Barbara Plett Asher is following Pompeo's visit and she's found the country in a state of change. This is the premiere of a Saudi film nominated for an award at the Sundance Festival. In the audience, women sit beside men, a handful of them not wearing headscarves, something that until recently was unthinkable in this ultra-conservative society. It feels like a different country to Kinda, who's on a break from studying in America. Yeah, when I left, it was one thing, and I came back, and it was entirely other thing. So the approach I see is very go big or go home. So they started with no movie theaters, and all of a sudden they're prettier than any of the theaters I've been to outside the country. And concerts, too, organized by a new government body, the Entertainment Authority. The concert was almost unthinkable that they threw the concert, and they had everyone together, like the youth mixed together, singles all together. That was insane. That was almost unthinkable. These are among the bold reforms on which the young and ambitious Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has built his image as a changemaker, tarnished now by a gruesome death. U.S. intelligence believes he ordered the murder of a critic, Jamal Khashoggi. I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, he's the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. 
The American comedian Hassan Minhaj delivered his own spirited criticism of the Crown Prince in his show Patriot Act. Netflix removed the episode in Saudi Arabia after the government complained that it violated a cybercrimes law. I received a tip from a friend of mine who told me, have you seen this episode? I can't find it on Netflix anymore. Uh, so I went to check. Ahmed Al Omran broke the story for the Financial Times newspaper. I met him at one of Riyadh's new trendy coffee shops, a booming business. He says the Netflix incident appears to fit a pattern of diminishing space for freedom of expression. It, it has been this paradox. In the one hand, you had uh, a social liberalization agenda being pushed very aggressively by the government and has been welcomed by many people. But on the other hand, uh, the tolerance and uh, acceptance criticism has, has changed dramatically to the worst, according to many activists. The Saudi establishment has blamed rogue agents for Mr. Khashoggi's murder and flatly denied the crown prince had anything to do with it. Prince Turkey Al Faisal is a senior member of the royal family. Of course it is a matter of concern and I think it's been an unfair uh, attempt to criminalize uh, the crown prince on the part of media. If the crown prince was completely in the dark about the conspiracy to kill Mr. Khashoggi, as the Saudis claim. Is it not the height of incompetence for something like this to happen under his nose when he is the de facto ruler of the country? Rogue actions by subsidiaries is not unique to the kingdom, nor is it unique to the crown prince. President Trump and his secretary of state say there's not enough evidence to directly link the crown prince with the killing, and they stress the strategic relationship with the kingdom. We will continue to have a conversation with uh, the Crown Prince and the Saudis about ensuring the accountability is full and complete with respect But to Mike the Pompeo is still looking for more answers and actions. The Americans have sanctioned senior advisors to the Crown Prince. They're waiting to see if Saudi punishment will follow. It is a strange and unsettling time in this country. The Saudi government has imprisoned a number of high-profile female activists. Yet many women praise the crown prince, such as Saja al-Husseini, whose entertainment company organized this festival. Well, it's really important. The crown prince was important because he gave it this uh, platform where we have opportunities we weren't able to have it before. But the Khashoggi affair has exposed the contradictions between an authoritarian monarchy and a drive to modernize, led by a powerful, headstrong prince. A complex political crisis for the Trump administration to navigate with a traditional ally. That report by the BBC's Barbara Plett Usher, Riyadh. The Whitbank Magistrates Court in South Africa's Mpumalanga province has referred the 24-year-old mother, Zintle Maditla, who allegedly killed her four children for mental evaluation. Maditla allegedly killed her children aged between 11 months and 8 years in clarinet at Emalahleni a day after Christmas. She allegedly called her family members and told them to check a rented house where the four bodies were found wrapped in a blanket. Eric Lubisi. Reports. Maditla's family members, the father of the three children and a group of community members attended court proceedings. Last week, none of them was present. She appeared in court covering her face with a duke. State lawyer Jablan Mapete told the court that he consulted with the suspect and she seemed to be not in good state of mind. Mapete made an application for her to be referred to a mental institution for evaluation. He suggested that she be evaluated by more than two mental experts. However, the state did not oppose the defense's application. State Prosecutor Joanna Ramsey says only two experts should evaluate her. The court has referred her to MLU Psychiatric Hospital for observation. She will be evaluated by four experts. Her family has welcomed the court's decision to send her for mental observation. According to the children's grandfather Kevin Balance, the family has forgiven her. We are happy that we are sent for, for observation. Yes. We as family have given her, we wanted to help her. Because in life, we all deserve second chances. We cannot hold against her forever, forever. She's still our child. She needs to forgive her and she made a mistake in life. We all do make mistakes. So, yes, we have forgiven her. Maritla handed herself over to the police following the incident. She was then admitted in hospital. The cause of the children's death is still unknown. The children 
were laid to rest last week Tuesday. The matter will be back in court on February 14. I'm Eric Lubisi in Whitbeck Magistrate Court, Mpumalanga. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. A Zimbabwean street vendor outside the Pipe Bridge border posts in Zimbabwe is cashing in on fellow Zimbabweans who are crossing into South Africa to buy fuel. Florence Moyo sells empty containers which people use to fill up petrol and diesel and take it to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnanga Gozanu PF government at the weekend hiked fuel prices by a massive 150% amid fuel shortages. Moyo says she expects her business to boom in the coming days if the Zimbabwean situation does not change. Because fuel is very expensive in Zimbabwe, so people came here to take to buy containers and take fuel to go with it to Zimbabwe. I sell 10 liters, 25 rand, 20 liters, 40 rand, 5 liters, there are 15 rand, these buckets are 30 rand. Public hearings are to continue into South Africa's power utility Eskom's application to energy regulator NERSA for a 15% annual tariff increase for each of the next three years. An energy expert has criticized Eskom's proposed tariff hike, labeling it as a premature. Energy expert Ted Blom has told the hearing in Cape Town that there were a few aspects which need to be considered before the power utility could propose its three-year a pricier trajectory. These applications are defective in the sense that uh, they don't reflect the reality of South Africa's economy. Secondly, I think they're premature because the board is still going to announce its turnaround plan, which hopefully will make a big difference to Eskom in terms of structure and viability. Uh, And secondly, the president's task force, the eight wise men, still have to report as well by the end of the month. So for us to uh, give Eskom a three-year price trajectory uh, without knowing all the drastic changes that we're expecting from these wise people, premature, it's a waste of time. Analysts expect the South African Reserve Bank to keep rates unchanged when it makes its decision on interest rates later this week. At its last meeting, the Reserve Bank increased rates by 25 basis points to 6.75% in November 2018, they say weak domestic demand and the U.S.'s inclination to keep rates level will influence the bank's decision. Economist at Investec, Inabel Bishop, says rates are only expected to increase next year if electricity prices increase. The Reserve Bank will be targeting inflation in 2020 when it meets at its MPC meeting next week. We're looking for inflation to come out around about 5.5% in 2020. Certainly large electricity price increases will assist in lifting inflation both in the second half of this year and next year. With also the possibility of an increase in oil prices, there should be some upward pressure on petrol prices as well. Pan-African Telecoms Group Liquid Telecom has appointed Mohamed Abdel Basit as its new regional CEO for Middle East and West Africa. Based in Cairo, Egypt, Basit will oversee the group's expansion further into MEWA following the recent news that it is investing 400 million US dollars in the Egyptian market and has completed the first fiber network to stretch all the way from Cape Town to Cairo. Basit will also explore new market opportunities in West Africa as Liquid Telecom begins expanding its service offering into the region. 
Consumers Federation of Kenya is opposed to the proposal that all information communications technology purchases for the government to come under the ICT ministry's control. COFEC Secretary General Stephen Mutoro says that the attention of the COFEC is drawn to media reports attributed to ICT Cabinet Secretary Joe Mucheru, asking that all ICT purchases for the government come under his ministry's control. Mutoro says that the proposal seems to make a lot of sense, especially on volume of scale. The U.S. dollar is trading at 363.63 Nigerian Naira, 10.31 Botswana Pula at 100 shillings and 71 cents, and 11.87 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.70 Brazilian Rial, 67.3 Russian Ruble, 70.56 Indian Rupee, 676 Chinese yuan and 1380 South African rand. The US dollar is trading at 77 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,291. Platinum, $800 pounds. So the price of Brent crude oil is at $59.73 a barrel. From an African perspective, live from Johannesburg. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, this will begin with football news. The South African national under-20 football team, Amajita, have reported for camp to begin preparations for the Africa Cup of Nations. Amajita coach Sabosinong has named a provisional squad ahead of the tournament, which will kick off in Niger early next month, as he looks to find a strong team that will both conquer Africa and qualify for the FIFA World Cup that will be played in Poland later this year. The team will be based in Johannesburg until Wednesday and then head to Nelspruit in Pumalanga to continue their preparations. Sinong has named 34 players in a provisional squad, which will be cut down to 21 for the tournament. And the late, the family of the late soccer legend, Phil Masinga, says he will be laid to rest next Thursday with one of the two memorial services to be held in Johannesburg this Friday. Details of the funeral arrangements have not yet been released. Government officials of South Africa have visited Masinga's home in the northwest province to pay their respects and meet with family. The former Bafana Bafana striker died after a long battle with cancer. He was 49 years old. Family spokesperson Majoro Ngupani says they will write to President Cyril Ramaphosa to afford Masinga an official provincial funeral. We have agreed that the funeral will be next week on Thursday. We will have a memorial service next week, Tuesday, at the auditorium in the municipality of Matlosana. We'll have the second one in Johannesburg on Friday, this coming Friday. It is because once you give someone a provincial state funeral, there are processes that need to be followed. One, you need to get the response from the president. Initially, as a family, wanted to bury him this Sunday, but government then decided that, please, we can't bury him on Sunday. All parties must be involved. Because Phil Masinga is not only an ordinary player, he's a legend. In tennis news, Five-time Grand Slam champion Maria Sharapova has offered a dim view of the male's players' support for gender equality in tennis, saying Brighton Andy Murray has been one of the few exceptions championing the cause. Um, I mean, relatively speaking, I think they've been really tough, especially when it came to equality as, as a general point. I mean, sitting at a press conference at Wimbledon, you know, five, seven years ago, that wasn't there was not a lot of warmth coming from that <laughs> that side or that perspective. So that's tough. I mean, I, I think there's definitely a few exceptions in, in the game, and I'm sure that he's, he's been one of them. Um, but from an effort point of view and what you know he's able to do for the sport and for British tennis, in a sense, is iconic. Serena Williams made a ruthless start to her quest for a record equally in 24th Grand Slam singles title with a 6-love, 60-victory of unseeded German Tatiana Maria in the first round of the Australian Open this morning. 
And lastly, Stefan Peter Hansel won the seventh stage of the ongoing Dakar Rally in Peru last night to take back second place and cut Nasa Al-Atia's overall lead to 29 minutes. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN says it's ready to mediate in the DRC if requested. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa begins working visit to Mozambique and British MPs to vote on the government's deal to leave the EU. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumusu Ramagadza and Khumuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Now taking us to the top of the hour, for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Salif Keta with a track titled Manju.